Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 5. I'm going to begin in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing psalms or songs. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses or your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now he gives an illustration in verse 17 of Elijah. Elijah was one of those eras where we see tremendous miracles in the Bible. But James wants us to know that Elijah, for all those miracles we read about in Kings, was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave its rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, most Christians, when they walked into this room, could have quoted James 5.14. Is anyone among you sick? Call for the elders of the church. Anoint them with oil. The prayer of faith will save the sick. The problem with that is we can't take that one scripture about healing out of the whole context of James and everything we've been studying. If we do, it leads to all kinds of questions, right? Whenever you talk about divine healing, whenever you talk about miracles, people want to know, does God still heal today? If he does heal today, how does he heal? Uh, why doesn't everybody get healed? Uh, what about these faith healers I see on TV? Is that legitimate? Is that the way God heals? I'm going to try to answer some of those questions because obviously people want to know and somewhat we're in that text. But I want to start by saying this. The miraculous, miracles, visions, apparitions, healing, tends to diminish a greater reality of what God is always trying to do. The Bible says that Greeks love knowledge and the Jews seek a sign, right? So predominantly in the West, we want to know the secret sauce, right? Write a book on anything called The Secret and you'll sell a ton of books, right? In fact, that one year they just blatantly called the book The Secret and it sold millions of books. Other people love signs. They'll, they'll go anywhere. They'll get on planes just to see a sign. Somehow that validates faith. And yet Paul tells us that the generation in the wilderness who saw more signs, they were characterized by one thing, unbelief. So sometimes when we go right to signs, uh, we miss a greater reality. I don't think there's a greater illustration than Luke chapter 5. Very familiar story. Jesus' fame is going out through the region. And he's in a rented house doing a Bible study, right? And it's packed. And these two guys bring their friend on a stretcher, and they can't get into this packed room. So in Middle Eastern houses, they had steps that would go up the back, and they go up the back with this man, and there's a thatch roof. And they peel away the thatch, and they drop the paralytic on his bed right in the middle of the Bible study. Parenthetically, for those of you who lead small groups or one day meet, may lead a small group, uh, your house will get messy, right? People will tear your stuff apart and all. So uh, if you want to do God's work, get rid of your white couches and white rugs and get messy for the kingdom of God. They drop this guy in and everybody's ready for the show, right? And by the way, if Jesus wants to be a legend, this is the time. Heal this guy and everyone will know your son of God. The problem is Jesus is the great physician. He's a savior, he analyzes the guy, like any good doctor, 
he identifies the man's problem, and then he announces, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, what? Like thumbs down emoticons all over the place, right? If it was Philly, we might boo. Like, this isn't what we came for. What do you mean your sins are forgiven? And then Jesus says, so that you know the Son of Man has power to forgive sin, I'm going to show you an outward illustration of something you can't see inward, like sins being forgiven. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man was healed. See, Jesus is the great physician, identified the man's problem. It wasn't paralysis. It was a sin problem. That's the problem of the human race. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have a sin problem at the end of the day. That's why when you read the paper and you read allegations of leaders who were in sexual misconduct and lie and all that, you should not be surprised. You should be surprised with anybody that has virtue. We are sinners by nature. And the glorious answer to all that we are is your sins are forgiven. So they overlooked the reality of the true healing. Now, what's the greater reality that James is pointing to here at the end of his letter? Uh, remember who James is writing to. Remember in chapter 1, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, the early church, predominantly Jewish. Uh, read Acts 8 and 9. They were scattered all over the earth, all over the Roman Empire. And they're suffering greatly under persecution. James begins to write a letter of comfort to them. That's why he talks about patience and endurance. That's why he writes about Job. That's why he says, look, you can't be double-minded. He's telling them what real faith is. If you're going to survive, this is real faith. And he's writing a letter of comfort. And when he gets to these end verses and he answers, asks these three questions, is anyone suffering, is anyone sick, he's not telling them about divine healing. In the context of James, he's telling them about the power of prayer. Every verse I read to you, look back in your Bible, every verse I read to you has the word prayer in it. The end of James is about the comfort of prayer. It's about all that God can do in our midst. The greater reality is this. Yes, God heals. Yes, he still heals today. Yes, he answers prayer. Those are all wonderful things. Do you know what James is really driving at? And this is my third time teaching through the book, and it took till this time to see it. James is basically saying, for those of you who have real faith, you'll never be alone. You'll never be alone. And I want to tell you, in this world, with all that goes on, with all the pain, all the suffering, if you travel and see much of the world, that is one of the greatest promises you could ever have. That we can go through this life and never be alone. Now, here's what James knows. He knew Jesus after the flesh. It was his brother. He, like John, we have tasted and touched concerning the word of God. We, we, we physically, we were in Jesus' presence. Now everything has changed. But James needed a Savior just like you and I needed a Savior. James has real faith. Now, the Spirit of God impressed on me on every one of these messages. I need to spend at least two minutes redefining real faith every single week. Uh, real faith is when the gospel is appropriated towards you. Here's what that means. It means you've come to a place in your life, either through somebody sharing the scriptures or some revelation, where you are a sinner separated from God. There is a chasm between you and God that can never be uh, rebuilt. You're just separated. And no amount of good works is ever going to get you back to God's presence. It's not about, are you better than someone else? It's just about this chasm. 
And then you come to the understanding that the chasm is only bridged through the cross of Christ, that he said it is finished, he died in your place. When you get down on your knee and say, I am a sinner, and you accept Christ as Savior, you have real faith. The Bible says you're born again, John chapter 3. That the seed of the word of God goes into your heart, you're regenerated, there's a transformation. Old things have passed away, everything's become new, and you get a brand new life. For the first time in your life, you are in touch with the living God. That's real faith. Real faith produces fruit, real faith endures trials, everything James has been talking about. And the crowning, crowning thought is that real faith means you'll never be alone. Why will we never be alone if we have real faith? Number one, Jesus made this promise. I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Jesus told us the ultimate comfort would be the Holy Spirit that would come upon us. He would be our teacher, guide, and friend, and we would have the realization of Romans 8 that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Here's the second reason you'll never be alone. The moment you became a Christian, a for real Christian, you entered or were immersed into what's called the new community. Now, we have another word for it. It's called the church, and the Germans kind of screwed that word up, and they made it a building. That's not what we're part of. We're part of the Greek word, the ecclesia. This was a group of people. Uh, an ecclesia could have been a group of politicians, a group of educators, a group of philosophers. We are the ones called out. Here's how it works. I got saved in a dorm room in 1981, said a sinner's prayer. The second I said that prayer, the first thing that came to my mind is, where are all the other people who have done this? I want to be around them. I want to be around people who believe Jesus is real and the Bible's real. I, how do I get around these people? And so I was taken to a church like this, thank God, where people believed in God and the scriptures and all, and it changed my life. I never saw anything like this before. The church meant everything to early believers, the ecclesia. For James, who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, he was filled with the Spirit like everyone else in uh, Acts chapter 1 and 2, the 120 in the upper room. Um, he experienced all that was the wonder and awe of Acts chapter 2. They had all things in common. They met in small groups and large groups. And by the way, for those who think our church is too big, 3,000 were saved the first day. 5,000 were saved the next day. God always does things big. He always goes big, okay? And so they were studying the apostles' doctrine. There was all, there was wonder. They were suffering persecution. The early church, predominantly Jewish, from their Jewish family and friends, they were also suffering persecution from Rome and, and that whole empire. The church for them and for you and me, the new community, becomes a place where we can love and be loved, serve and be served. We can know and be known. We can give and we can receive. It's a place where we celebrate people's successes. We walk through their pain with them. I want to say one thing before I get to the heart of my message with this reality. Everyone needs to be part of a local church. If this isn't your local church, find one. If this is your church, put roots down. What does that mean? It means you need to join a small group or a serving team. Either one is fine. I'll bet you $100 the people that work in the cafe, the bookstore, the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the ushers and greeters have built great bonds together. And so those in small groups. 
You need to start hanging out with God's people. You still can hang out with the lost. They have to be reached. No problem with them being your friends. But you got to get around like-minded people, which means you might have to stay a little longer on Sunday or come at other times. You have to get to know leaders. It's not easy, but we're accessible. It's just a place where you need to put your roots down. When James wrote this letter, it would have been read in a house church. And when it got to this point, someone reading would have said, is anyone suffering? And hands would have gone up all throughout the room. Is anyone cheerful? Few hands would have gone up throughout the room. They were suffering amazingly. And then finally, he would have said, is anyone sick? And hands would have gone up through the room. So let's break this down. I want to start with the question, is anybody cheerful? Is anybody cheerful? Anybody happy? Yeah. Like, like we talk about suffering so much, and it's in the scripture, and we talk about life's problems, but life's pretty good most of the time. Wouldn't you agree? It really is. So there's nothing wrong with being happy and cheerful. Happy is the man who knows the Lord, right? I don't know if you know this or not, but Sunday mornings, this hour is really designed as a celebration. It really is. It goes something like this. Everybody in this room, you've heard me say this a hundred times, everybody in this room has a backpack of problems, right? So if I open my backpack right now, I got five or six things I'm working on, and it's a drag, and I'm fighting through it, and I'll get there, right? And so do you. But Sunday morning, for those of us with one backpack, we leave all those backpacks in the atrium, and we enter his court with praise, choosing to focus on the audience of one. Not on a worship team, they're kind of leading us, but God is the worship leader. And the beauty is we sing. By the way, it's like one of the only things you can do in unison where you're not as bad as you really are, right? It all sounds good together. And think about this. Um, in Islam, there is no singing. A lot, a lot of Muslims come to Christ because they walk in our services like, what is this singing? A lot of religions don't sing. When do you normally sing? When you're happy, right? Birthday parties, weddings, right? The shower, you get good news, you start singing, you run around the house, right? Singing's a wonderful thing. Christmas Eve, we had four services, and by Christmas Eve, I was hoarse. People said, oh my gosh, yeah, you had to teach four times. I'm like, no, the teaching wasn't the problem. I sang every song in my seat. I could not sing. I can't walk into a worship service and not sing. God has put a song into our heart. And so we come in here and we sing these songs of faith. It's a wonderful thing. And Sunday morning is designed to be a celebration. Now, here's a realization I came to about five years ago. Some people have two backpacks. And that's when life gets hard. If you have two backpacks, you need somebody to walk through life with you. And sometimes those people are here on Sunday mornings, probably most Sunday mornings. Where this really hit home to me I was listening to a gentleman who leads a large international relief organization. And he travels the world 250 weeks a year, and his granddaughter, three years old, passed away. He took six weeks of bereavement, and when he got back in the field, he was scheduled to be in Germany to meet with church leaders. It was Sunday, he felt really, really down and alone, and he went to a local church. The worship was wonderful, the message was spot on, everything seemed normal, but he went home really, really sad. 
Now, you can't blame that church. How would they know he lost his daughter? We certainly can't know everything everybody's going through. And so this is what we decided. On your way in, you see that construction? We're taking our old entrance, taking the doors off it, and we're going to make a prayer room. Now, we pray here at the altar. People pray in the cafe. People pray all over. And we still want that to go on. But we want a designated place with people that really love to pray, not counsel, people that just love to pray. So that if you come here and you're really going through something, that in the midst of this celebration, there's a place where people will care for you. See, that's church, guys. That's what we do. Is anyone cheerful? Great. Sing songs. Is anyone suffering? We can pray. And as I shared, all these verses deal with prayer. Now, verse 14 does say this. Is anyone sick? Now, cessationists, if you don't know what a cessationist is, that's people that don't believe God heals today. They don't believe any spiritual gifts are today. And I really feel sad for those people because I would never want to err on what God can't do. I would always err on what God can do. And I believe God does heal today. I believe all the gifts of the Spirit are today. Uh, to me, the saddest place in the world would be the church where there are no gifts. And you would not believe what cessationists, and I've read all their stuff, have to do to this word sick to make it not say sick. They try and make it say suffering, but he already asked if you were suffering. Is anyone sick? Call for the elders of the church. Anoint them with oil. Pray. And God will heal. Now, if James knew anything about Jesus, he knew the secret of Jesus' life was prayer. And he knew Jesus was a healer. In fact, even a casual observer of Christianity knew Jesus had a healing ministry. He declared it in the synagogue that day in Nazareth when he was handed the scroll of Isaiah 61. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He handed the scroll back to the attendant and said, today this scripture is fulfilled. This is the embodiment. This is the Messiah in your, in your hearing. Now, everyone in that synagogue then knew what we know today. Our world is sick. Our world is sinful, it's diseased, it's corrupt, it's fallen. I don't care what veneer you put on it, I don't care how much prosperity we have, it all still exists. And Jesus declared that day that he was the medicine for broken hearts, broken bodies, and a broken world. And for the next three years, he went out and demonstrated it. Right after that synagogue, Matthew tells us he went into Galilee healing all manner of sicknesses of all the people. If you want to drill down to the actual encounters, there's 24 in the Gospels. Four times Jesus healed blindness, twice leprosy, two times fever, uh, one time a lame man, one time deaf and dumb, six people that were demon-possessed or had mental illnesses, three cases of paralysis, and then, of course, we all know that Jesus raised people from the dead. He was called the great physician because he healed all manner of diseases. When he called his 12, he gave them power to go out and heal all manner of diseases. If you really want to know the heart of Jesus' ministry, think about John the Baptist when John's in prison 
and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he asks the question, are you the one, are you the Messiah, or should we look for another? Now this is startling because John leaped in his womb. He knew so much Jesus was the Messiah, he leaped in his womb. He said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He said, this one, I'm not worthy to unloose his sandal strap. I must decrease, he must increase. John knew he was the Messiah. Why was John in doubt? Because John knew he was never getting out of his prison cell. And when deliverance doesn't come, it starts to play on your mind and doubt comes. Jesus said, go tell John, this is Luke 7, what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. You want to know if the Messiah is here? This is what the prophets prophesied. That things would be restored to the right order. John was assured that the mission of the Messiah was right on point. Now, Jesus told us to go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize people, teach them everything we've learned, etc., etc. But in Mark 16, 15, he said, These signs will follow them to believe. They'll cast out demons in my name. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll lay their hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, if it's talked about in the Gospels, if we see it in the Acts, and if it's in the Epistles, it's doctrine. So Jesus said it would happen in Acts chapter 2, 3, and a lot of other places in Acts we see it happen. And then Paul talks about it in Corinthians. And so do I believe God still heals? Absolutely, 100%, without a doubt. Do I think God heals through faith healers? No. And some of you are thinking, well, how can you make that blanket statement? How can you judge somebody else's servant? Listen, my first five years as a Christian, for those of you who came from charismatic backgrounds or churches, no one, no one was in a more charismatic church than I was. I've looked at this backwards and forwards from a reformed view, a charismatic view, an evangelical view, every view you can look at. And I don't find anywhere in my Bible where one person is given a gift of healing where they can heal everybody, and if they could, turn on your common sense meter, they should walk right down the children's hospital. Just turn on your common sense meter. If God still heals, why doesn't everyone get healed? I told you I studied this backwards and forwards from every way. You ready for my profound answer? I don't know. Want to hear something more profound? Neither do you. And I don't want to hear that God's healing over in the mission field because I've been in the mission field and they're dying at the same rate we are. I don't want to hear people in the non-Western world have more faith and that's why. I don't want to hear all those cliches because none of them are true. You don't have to defend God. Do you understand that? God heals. God can do whatever he wants. He longs to heal. Read the Bible. He longs to comfort. Can I tell you what I do now? I know this. Jesus didn't heal everybody. For all those times where it says he healed every one of their diseases, there's places like John chapter 5, the pool of Bethesda, where we know from the context in John 5, everybody's there with a terminal disease. Jesus walks into one man, lame 38 years. He says, do you want to be made whole? The guy says, you know, the guy gives him the whole problem. and They get through all that, and he says, yeah, and Jesus heals him and leaves everybody else there. Why? We'll never know. I'll never know. You'll never know. I know this. Paul prayed three times for an affliction he had, 
and it wouldn't leave. I also know this, again, I've been around the block. Whenever you believe in healing at all costs, like it always has to happen, when it doesn't, there's only two people to blame, God or the person. And if you can't blame God, what you wind up doing is saying a person didn't have enough faith. The problem with that is that means Job didn't have enough faith, and James is using Job as an example. We'll look at it next week. Paul didn't have enough faith. He wrote a third of the New Testament. See? See the problems we get into here? So one of the things I know is that Jesus didn't heal everybody. Paul, one of the greatest men, didn't get healed. Let's try and stick to James. Let's get out of this whole healing thing. Let's just stick to the verses here. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Anoint him with oil. Prayer of faith will save the sick. I think one of the things James is saying is, um, for this whole thing to work, you should be part of a local fellowship of believers. Right? If you're supposed to call for the elders of the church, you should be in a church. Does that make sense? Uh, James didn't say, look, start finding where the faith healers are and go where they are. Like hop on a Greyhound bus and go find them. He didn't say come to a healing service tonight at 7 o'clock. He said call for the elders of the church, which means you should be in a church. Two, you have to know who the elders are. Now, we can get a lot of semantics here. Elders, in my view, are pastors. Read 1 Peter 5. He used the word episkopos, uh, bishop, presbyteros, poimen, which is pastor. He uses all these offices for, for, for one and the same. It, it's a church leader of some kind. Uh, let's get to the oil because, again, people like this kind of thing. Um, the secret sauce is the oil, right? So is it Bertoli's oil or is it the Holy... You know, oil from the Holy Land. Like, what do we do? Is it extra virgin? Like, people really get into this, I'm telling you. And for 1999, faith healers will sell you their version of the oil, right? You know, they're taking Acme oil and putting their brand on it. And for 1999, you can have that oil. Oil was two things. One, it was medicinal. They had no icy hot or Bengay. They used olive oil. They rubbed it on parts that were sick. Uh, the second thing, and probably what James is talking about, olive oil, or oil was a sign of God's presence. Remember the oil that dripped down Aaron's beard? So it's kind of a point of contact that the presence of God is there. The heart of the passage is prayer. The prayer of faith will save the sick. Prayer is in every verse. There's power in prayer. Now some people get confused by prayer. Some people say, well, well, prayer's strange. Like, why do we pray? Doesn't God already know? Yeah, but you don't know. See? Prayer informs us more than it informs God. Are we telling God to change his mind? Are we begging God? Is that how it works? No, not really. Do you know what prayer at the end of the day really does? First of all, it unites us. If I have to call for the elders of the church, they're going to pray for me. That means we're, means we're never alone. We're in this together, Right? This idea of Western self-help, let me read the secret sauce and solve it on my own, never existed in that day. Everything was done in community. Our prayer, prayers are important because our souls were meant to connect with God. One of the first things you do when you're born again is you want to pray. Because you're hardwired for it. You're hardwired to reach out to something greater than yourself. So the first thing is you have to think less of yourself. That's what it means actually to be born again. There's a certain humility. Prayer 
makes me feel small and God feels big. It downsizes me. Because at the end of the day, it's all about us, right? At the end of the day, even though we believe in God, we've got like this get out of jail free card in our back pocket. Like if God doesn't come through, we'll play our own cards. That's one of the problems with terminal illness and some other things is you're out of cards. And when you get alone with God, there's an appropriate smallness where you realize that you're finite and he's infinite, that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, that he loves you more than you would ever love yourself. And it draws you into a oneness with him. That's the power of prayer. That's what we were designed for. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week where it says psychologists shouldn't um, ignore the soul, which is really strange because the word psychology is the study of the soul. But they jettisoned the soul because Freud said it was a neurosis, so they tried to go every other way. This guy's actually arguing they should go backwards, and the reason he's arguing for this is he did his internship at McLean Hospital in Virginia, and he said the first 10 patients he met all asked them about God. And he's like, oh my gosh, in all my psychological training, I never learned anything about God. He went on to do a study and found out that 50% of all patients uh, with mental or terminal diseases at one time or another asked their doctor or psychologist about God. Isn't that amazing? And it makes sense to you and me, right? We're spirit, soul, and body. It's all interconnected. We pray for so many reasons. We pray because we love God. We want to connect with him. We pray because we're scared. We're helpless. We're grateful. We're, you know, there's a thousand reasons why. And James is trying to get us around this idea that prayer will lead to comfort, that all the great men of God prayed, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Job, all these people mentioned here. It's actually the only question the disciples ever asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw something in his life and they wanted to learn. Philip Yancey said, prayer and only prayer restores my vision to the one that has God's vision. He, is saying, he says, when I pray, I wake from my blindness to see that wealth and all the things I'm pursuing lurk as a terrible danger and not a goal worth striving for. That value depends not on race or status, but on the injury of God every person bears, that no amount of effort to improve physical beauty or life in this world has much re uh, relevance to the world beyond. To the world beyond. So much what you and I are doing is not only for this life, but the world beyond. For all of you who gave in the offering, you gave here and you gave to the world beyond. Jesus said when you give... It goes to a place where raw, moth and rust and thieves don't destroy. Everything we do is going out into eternity somehow, some way. Jesus talked about rewards. He talked about every idle word. Yancey says prayer brings us into a place where we realize there's a new world coming. It kind of right-sizes us. In all the years that I've pastored this church, I've had people walk the aisle after a service and tell me a lot of calamities. Some of those calamities came from friends. Most of them are, I have cancer. I have this, I have that. I'll tell you three remarkable stories. There was a gentleman in our church almost from the beginning. He got ill. I went to visit him at Delaware County Hospital. I'll never forget the day. 
He was on a bed of ice. I didn't even know they had those. He's on a bed of ice with like 107 fever. They're giving him days to live. I go in, I pray for him. He's not even cognizant that I'm there. I'm in the lobby, listen to this, planning his funeral with his wife. Six weeks later, he's not only back at our church, he's going to Shady Maple again. It was his favorite place. And he went on to live another eight years. It's still one of the greatest miracles I've ever seen. Had another friend very close to, we would camp together, do things together. Uh, 30 years old, came, walked this aisle one day and said, I have testicular cancer. Just crushed me for days. Five years later, by only God's design, we were on an extreme men's camping trip out in Colorado. There was about 30 of us. And we fanned out in this beautiful forest and we were doing worship. And then every guy was just sharing whatever came to his mind. And he shared that it was the fifth year anniversary where you're cancer free of his testicular cancer. We were all together and he thanked us all for walking him through that. It's just another miracle. Had another guy who went to his house to visit him. He's the sickest guy I've ever seen. Brain tumor. You imagine visiting a guy with a brain tumor who is the sickest guy you've ever seen. What would go through your mind? Prayed with him, left with more doubt than I showed up with. And for the last eight years, I meet him on the steps almost every week as he drops his kids off. He's perfectly fine. And then I could tell you the same stories of people we buried and who are no longer here. Why does God heal some and not heal others? I have no idea. I know a few things. I know we all have to leave this world at some point. Uh, there's another thing I know. We live in an age, and it's by God's design, of the greatest medical knowledge in history. You know, in 1950, the number one cost for hospitals were bed linens, because that's about all they had. At the turn of the century, for the 20th century, so 1901, basically, the life expectancy in America for a male was 45 years old. For those of you over 45, look at the benefit you have. 78 now. People are living in their 80s, right? Uh, my sister-in-law is Filipino, and she always cracks up when we talk. She goes, I don't get you guys. You're Americans. She goes, every time you guys get together, you talk about homeopathic things and all these Eastern remedies. She goes, and here we are in the Philippines, and all we want is Western medicine. She goes, none of that stuff works. We tried it all. We don't have anything. We want all your medicine, and you're over here with all the medicine in the world, and you want all our stuff. Let me tell you the final thing I know. There's one mass healing coming. When you and I get on the other side, there's going to be glorified bodies with no disease, no dysfunction, no ailments, no aches, no pains. Crippled people are going to walk, blind people are going to see. This light affliction will be gone. There will be the mass healing the Bible talks about where we will see Jesus as he is. Again, the truth of the matter and the greater reality is you could be healthy in this life only to be lost in eternity. Jesus, as a Savior, came for a sin problem.
I'm not copping out on why God doesn't heal anyone. But I know, I know sin is a greater problem. I also know this. If God healed everybody, the church would be packed with all the wrong people who would be here for all the wrong reasons. Because people that came out of Egypt came because they saw the miracles and God said many of them died in the wilderness. We don't love God because he heals. We don't love God because he provides. We love God because he's God. And until that day comes, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence And none of us is getting out of here alive unless the rapture comes anyway. But we're all getting to the other side. So how do we live? One eye on this world and one eye on eternity. Because that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Let's stand together.